A website is never finished, especially a B2B tech website. Welcome to Forward Slash, the podcast that explores how B2B tech companies can leverage their websites to achieve fast, efficient, predictable, and scalable growth. In each episode, I take a big issue affecting the B2B tech landscape and then pick the brains of marketing leaders around the world to learn how the issue affects the questions B2B tech marketers should be asking about their websites and how to answer them. Let's get into it. Mark Evans, fractional CMO and host of the podcast Marketing Spark, which is a fantastic resource that provides insight from B2B SaaS marketers and founders in the trenches. I've become a regular listener. A lot of it really resonates with what we're working on here. So I'm really excited to have you on, Mark. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. That's always uh, always good to talk about B2B SaaS marketing and B2B marketing. Totally, totally. Yeah, this is uh, some interesting stuff, especially considering the year that we're in and then what happened last year and all of the paradigm shifts, if you will. I think we've got a pretty great discussion. We're going to be diving into fractional CMOs, what exactly that is. There, There's definitely been a rise uh, in their popularity and, and the role that they play. Um, you do a lot of work in positioning. We're going to talk a little bit about that and getting a little bit more granular, the role that websites play. Uh, in the B2B tech buyer and customer journey, all kind of with this new backdrop that is 2023. But before we dive into that, I kind of just want to take a step back and learn about you, Mark. I'm curious to learn about the journey you took to becoming a fractional CMO. Do you want the Ruger's Digest version or the or the long version? I'm interested in it all, man. Like whatever, whatever you feel. Uh, Whatever you're comfortable so, sharing. So I went to uh, I went to journalism school. Uh, actually, was a journalist for two of Canada's uh, national newspapers. Uh, primarily wrote about technology, which led me into the startup world. Uh, worked for a few startups, and in 2008, I started my own consulting business. I call myself an accidental entrepreneur. Never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. Always thought I'd be a journalist, and kind of fell into it. And over the last three years, I've really narrowed down or focused on being a fractional CMO and strategic advisor for B2B SaaS companies, particularly B2B SaaS companies with less than $5 million in sales that are doing little marketing or no marketing at all. So that's my, that's my ICP and, uh, and it's going well. I mean, it, as you said, off the top, you know, we had a couple of great years, 2020, 2021 were awesome. And then early 2022 marketing kind of screeched to a halt. And the last, you know, the last eight months have been challenging for a lot of people, uh, including the consulting community. Uh, and it's a, it's a new, it's a new landscape. It's a new volatile, uncertain landscape. And, you know, you just have to put your head down and, and work your way through it. I completely agree. I think um, we're, we're, we're getting back to basics uh, for sure. I would like to pick your brain around the, what it is to be a fractional CMO. Um, you know, they're not new to the space. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem that there's um, increasing popularity in the idea of a fractional CMO. So we'd just like to uh, get your insight there. Just kind of like the state of fractional CMOs. Why have they been increasing in popularity recently? Let me take a back a step back when talking about fractional. So in mm. 2020, uh, April 2020, I lost my job working for as VP marketing for a fintech company. I fell into back into consulting and I tried calling myself a positioning expert, a digital storyteller, a digital marketer, strategic advisor, and none of it worked. None of it mm -hmm. for whatever reason. 
And one day I woke up and said, you know, what I really am is sort of a marketing leader. So why don't I call myself a fractional CMO? And then it, and it clicked, it just clicked because, you know, right now there's no lack of tactical, um, tactical support. Like you can, you can find tactical people everywhere, but mm -hmm. what a lot of companies are looking for is, is, is leadership, strategic leadership. And they see the, the title fractional CMO and immediately comes to mind as a seasoned marketing leader. So for, as a marketer doing marketer marketing, it worked and I, I, I gravitated around it. Now I thought that fractional CMO would be red hot. I thought that everybody would jump on the bandwagon and a lot of experienced marketers who had lost their jobs or looking to be their own boss would embrace fractional CMO and it would be, a swamped marketplace and much to my surprise it's actually evolved quite slowly mm. and it's only within the last few months that i'm starting to see signs you know i, I have a google alert for fractional cmo starting to see signs that it's picking up a little speed and mm. i would argue that if you asked you know a bunch of entrepreneurs and ceos about what a fractional cmo is and what do they do they probably wouldn't be able to give you a good answer um and I think that's part of the challenge right now is there's still a lot of educating to be done because fractional CMOs come in different shapes and sizes. They have different specialties. They play in different parts of the, of the funnel. And it's not a, it's because you hire a fractional CMO means that you're going to get the person who's going to help you with all your needs. There is very much specialties within a specialty. And so I'm spending a lot of time trying to explain to people what a fractional CMO does and what they don't do. And, uh, and mm -hmm. it's it's starting to resonate, but not as quickly as I thought. Gotcha. Um, I, I I am curious. I obviously every situation is going to be different. Is there a framework that you use yourself when you're picking clients, or just in general? Like when should companies consider bringing in a fractional CMO? Now that's a good question. I mean, at some point in time, a, a lot of companies the, the traditional arc is that they develop a product the ceo founder is the chief is the head of sales and the head of marketing they hire a sales organization and eventually they get around to marketing and they'll start to do some tactical execution create some content do some social media but they realize they don't have a strategy don't have a plan of attack and that's when they look to hire a fractional cmo or they hire to look they look to hire a, a, a director of marketing or a cmo and the reality is a cmo is expensive it's 150 000 plus plus options mm. plus perks and a lot of companies want it, but they can't afford it. And what they do is they turn to consultants for strategy and they have, they discovered the fractional CMO model. And it's very exciting to them because it's like they get to, you know, eat their cake and have it too. Right. They get this marketing leader who does all the things that CMO does, but they don't have to pay them a full full-time salary. So in theory, it makes a lot of a sense. And the question comes down to is how much marketing leadership do you need? So a fractional CMO could work a day a week, or they could work three days a week. Depends on how much marketing leadership you want, how active you are, how engaged they need to be. And it's a balancing act because, it, because you can run marketing and you can use a fractional CMO for a while, but I believe that at some point in time, when you have a well-oiled marketing machine and you've got a lot going on, that you're gonna to have to make the transition to a full-time CMO. You need somebody who's 24 seven, who's pulling the levers, who's watching all the key KPIs, who's engaging with 
stakeholders across the organization. And you can't do that as a fractional CMO. It's, it's, there's a lifespan for a fractional CMO. They, they fill a gap, but eventually you're going to need a marketing leader. Gotcha. That makes sense. What expectations do you have with potential clients who reach out to you? It, it, are, are there any expectations or is it just kind of this understanding that your job is to kind of bring order to the chaos? Or are there some elements that that you hope are well-oiled before you come on as a fractional CMO? It depends on the client. And one of the, the key aspects or the key considerations is discovering what their expectations are, what their needs are, mm-hmm. and why they're looking to hire a fractional CMO. Because fundamentally, I need to know that to figure out whether I'm a fit for them. So as I said, fractional CMOs come in different shapes and sizes. My specialty is more on the brand side. So if you're looking for someone who can help you with positioning, messaging, and content-driven strategies, then that's me. Because mm-hmm. I've got I've got a lot of experience in that. But if you're looking for someone who can run ABM or, you know, a full-blown um, uh, paid advertising campaigns, then you should probably look to, to a different type of CMO. So that's Step one is really finding out why they want to do marketing and what kind of marketing they want to do. The, the other thing is to figure out what their expectations are. I posted a video on LinkedIn this morning saying that you shouldn't hire a fractional CMO if you're looking for instant gratification, if you're looking to generate leads right away, um, if you're looking simply to, uh, to, to throw stuff out the wall and see what sticks, because you're not going to get value out of a fractional CMO. Um, Fractional CMO really should be there to give you strategic guidance, advice, help you do the right things, and as important, help you avoid mistakes. And that's a lot. That's what a lot of companies do when they do marketing out of the gate: is they do things and they spend a lot of money, and it doesn't generate ROI, and they just haven't done they haven't done the right things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just around about, about figuring out whether you're a good fit for them, and and as important, you know. Somebody will hire me, but at the same time, I'm hiring them. So I want to make sure that it's a win-win proposition and I can be successful. Maybe this is a silly question, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it sounds like some fra- or, or fractional CMOs have a specialization um, and, and, and you know, it, it can span uh, a wide spectrum. Have you ever tag-teamed the same client with another fractional CMO that specializes in some other areas? Or is that not really something that, that that's done? Well, if I had to give you the honest answer, fractional CMOs are fairly territorial creatures. <laughs> you know, you, sure. you don't want to invite your, your your competitor into the into the backyard with you. But I I do work with other marketers, and I do look for right. marketers who have areas of of expertise. So I'll bring in people who are really good at SEO or really good at SEM. But you know, it's it's actually a really uh, good question because I think. The model could definitely work where if you're working with a company and let's say I establish that marketing foundation, I create clear and compelling messaging and positioning. Uh, I put together a, a strategy, a, a plan of attack. And then at some point in time, I'm done. Like I've done my six months with the company. They've got full value out of me. And now they really want to lean into ABM. And that's not my area of expertise. I would, and if, they, if they're interested in fractional, um, I would say to them, listen, I think you need a different type of marketing leader. Uh, I think you should look for a fractional who is an ABM expert who's done it day in, day out and knows what they're doing. And that way you can tag team. That way you can you can hand the ball off to somebody else. And it's a win-win because I do the work that I do well and I'm successful and the client's happy. I I drive affinity by 
handing it over to somebody else who's going to help them. So it's a win for everybody involved. And I think that's how fractional is going to work together. Gotcha. Cool. Uh, Thanks for taking me through that. So I would like to dive into positioning. This is something that I like to talk about. And I've got to just want to pick your brain, but I want to frame this a little bit before we dive into it. Kind of as we've been discussing the, the, the reality of 2023 um, especially for B2B SaaS, right? Uh, uh, hyper-competitive, right? Thousands of products, especially if you're in MarTech or sales tech, right? Um, you know, shrinking markets, longer sales cycles. It's harder to open wallets these days. Buyer groups are increasing in size just to make sure that they're not, you know, uh, there, there's more of a filtration, I guess, to make sure that less mistakes are made. And then you have the whole idea of, uh, of the dark funnel, uh, right. And it's always going to be different for every, for every company and, and, and whatever motion you're using, but it's generally understood that a lot of this stuff is ha- happening behind the scenes in communities. People are, people are buying differently. They're having, they're figuring out, they're doing all their research behind the scenes and really only bringing in the, the, uh, the sales team, let's say 30%, uh, you know, is, is part of that journey. Given this reality, coming back around to positioning, I hopped onto Google trends. And uh, I, I, I looked up phrases around positioning, and this is just like positioning in general as a search term, positioning statements, brand positioning, product positioning. And looking at the last 20 years, um, there's, there was kind of an interesting t- trend line. It's, it, it kind of peaked at, in the early 2000s, and then it actually decreased and held kind of steady or, or stagnant um, for the ensuing 20 years, if you will, or 15 years. And then it started to increase at the beginning of 2022. There's been a little bit of a spike in, in search interest around positioning. Do you see this as, this is a big buildup, I apologize, but do you see this as a coincidence or is the writing on the wall and people are realizing that something's got to change here and positioning is more important than we thought? I've always believed that positioning is more important than we thought. But I would argue that during the two boom years, you know, the COVID boom years for B2B SaaS and B2B is that positioning became a nice to have versus a need to have and that people really didn't think of positioning. It didn't really matter. It didn't matter what your story was. It didn't matter how you went to marketplace. There was so much demand, so much interest in digital transformation that the rising tide lifted all ships. Mm-hmm. And 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 as you mentioned off the top, I think a lot of companies just forgot about the the the, the basics and and building a strong marketing foundation it was all about growth it was all about just do as much marketing as you can spend as much money as you can on advertising and and it's all about acquisition and i think what you've seen what the data shows you is that when demand softened and the tide went out um that it, it wasn't a matter there wasn't enough demand to support everybody and and a lot of companies realized that unless you had a clear and powerful customer story built upon positioning, messaging, and targeting is that you, you wouldn't resonate. You wouldn't make an impact in the marketplace. And you and the problem is, is every single marketplace has dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of competitors. So how do you stand mm-hmm. out? Like the, and they all their products are all the same and they all price pretty much the same. So you stand out by having positioning that is unique, better, or different. And, mm-hmm. it, you, and with all my clients, I, regardless of how good they think their positioning is, I always start with positioning because I want to make sure that story reflects what customers want, what a company's strengths are, and how they can 
stand apart from everybody else that they're battling with every single day. So yeah, uh, you know, I, I feel like sometimes I fight a Don Quixote battle when it comes to positioning. I'm leaning against, you know, windmills, hoping that somebody will listen to what I say and somebody will say, yeah, I agree with you. I, I agree that positioning is really important. And slowly but surely I'm, I'm getting um, more interest. And I think it's indicative of what's happening in the marketplace. There's a lot of uncertainty and it's, it's hard to capture the spotlight. So it sounds like it's still a little bit of an uphill battle as far as bringing positioning into the marketing org. Um, uh, is it, how hard is that battle or, or to get it, to get that buy-in uh, or is it kind of like you're the fractional CMO, we trust you, uh, get this done. Um, what does that conversation typically look like? There's two ways to answer that question. One is when marketing budgets are shrinking as they are right now, it all becomes a matter of priorities or the whole adage that people are saying do less do do more with less or exact you know so it mm -hmm. so positioning may not be the highest priority for a lot of companies they we're going to focus on abm and that's the way we're going to go right now or we're really being super efficient with our advertising but when i engage with clients they come to me with a symptom of something that's going wrong their website isn't performing they don't produce enough content they're not getting enough leads and when I work with them, I always say to them, listen, it all starts with positioning. Whatever you do on your website, your sales deck, your content marketing, your social media, it's underpinned by positioning and messaging. And unless you have that, then everything that you do isn't going to be as effective. So for me, it's an easy conversation because when I, when I engage with clients, I say to them, I have a three-step process. It always starts with positioning. This is the way I work. And so I essentially bully them into following my methodology and, and, but you know, the, you know, the interesting thing is, and I'm, I'm just going through this with a client right now, we've come out of a two month positioning exercise. They come out of it and they feel great. They feel inspired. They they're focused. They're suddenly like really stoked about marketing because they've got this story and they can't wait to can't wait to tactically execute. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's the power of positioning. It really gives you something to rally around when you do marketing and sales. What signals do you look for? Um, how can a company know if, if, if their positioning just, you know, is, is bad? What kind of signals do you see in companies that have improper positioning? The two big ones are when somebody hits their website, bounce rates are really high. Is it mm. clearly what they're saying on the, on the website is not working. So positioning really is you take your positioning and then you, you magically transform it into messaging that appears on the website. They're, they're related. They're like, they're like brother and sister. So mm -hmm. if you have a website and it's not converting and uh, time on page is really low and bounce rates are high and you're not getting demo requests or contact forms, then you know, your position isn't working. It's just not breaking through. People are just coming and going. And the other one is sales decks. If you're doing um, a demo or a sales deck and you're talking about your product and people don't get what you do, they, they start asking you questions like, how does this work? And what's your value? And how are you different from, you know, competitors X, Y, and Z? Then you've got a positioning problem. So those are two signals um, that what you're doing isn't working. And it, it could also, you could also do the cocktail party test or the dinner party test. Mm. You go to a dinner party and someone says, hey, you know, what do you do? And you give them the answer and they're like, uh, so I don't really get what you do, right? Can you, can you give me a better answer? Um, so those are, are signs that your story isn't clear and it's not interesting. And if that's the case, you're, you're dead on arrival. So mm. those would be sort of the big three in terms of you need to rethink your, your customer story, your positioning. 
how often do you recommend companies kind of revisit the that source of truth? I would do reviews once a quarter, just a litmus test to see whether the messaging and your position resonates, whether they're still impactful, whether they still reflect the overall macro environment and what customers are looking for. And then I would probably do a refresh annually. Okay. Because things change all the time. Last year at this time, it was all about acquisition. So your positioning and messaging really had to be about growth and bringing customers on board. This year, it's about productivity, efficiencies, you know, doing more with less. And so the message, the, the story changes. Um, I did a workshop recently um, looking at the evolution of Chili Piper's uh, website over the last mm. couple of years. And it's really interesting to see how the message evolved from being really confusing and a lot of industry vernacular to being really focused and targeted at what customers want and what Chili Piper allows them to do. And that's, that's a signal that here's a company that's clearly listening to its customers and measuring the impact of its website. And it's a great example of how positioning and messaging are very fluid and very dynamic and always evolving. It's, and as he said, it's not a set it and forget it kind of exercise. The biggest issue that I run into is companies are far too generic and high level. And that has to do, I believe, with the idea that they want to be all things to all people. Okay. They're, they're afraid of being focused and targeted because they feel that if they talk to a specific audience, then they're going to cut off other audiences. And as a result, their positioning is, is very vanilla-like. You know, it's mm. very, it's plain, it's not very inspiring, it's not focused. And it doesn't speak to any group in particular. And that's the death knell for positioning. Is sure. that it sort of people go, well, okay. Um, also, there's a lot of um, me too uh, positioning that happens. No one, they look at the competitive landscape and no one wants to stand out from the crowd. Again, mm -hmm. I think it comes down to fear. They don't want to be seen as being outside the box because they believe that target audiences are all interested in the same kind of messaging. So yeah, there's a lot of, and then, there, and then the, I think the other thing would be that um, there's a lot of messaging and positioning that's very product focused. They're so anxious to tell you about their their benefits and their and their features. It's not about the customer. And at mm -hmm. the end of the day, it, it has to be about the customer. Like when you do build a website, it has to be customer centric. It has to build their interest. And if you're just talking about your product, and there's nothing in it for the prospect, like the old adage, "What's in it for me?" And if, if, if you don't feel, if you don't answer that question on with your position and messaging, then, then it doesn't work. How do you overcome that fear, that objection uh, with clients? We're like, no, we don't want to do this because we want to make sure that we're not, we're not excluding anybody. But when at the same time, it does make sense. It's like, you want to niche down and make sure you're speaking to your ICPs. Uh, I mean, it, at the end of the day, like it's okay. Are we, are we generating revenue here? You have to give that positioning time to actually take place and stick. Like, what is that? How do you address that fear right off the bat and, 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 and like make clients feel safe that this is exactly what we need to do. The best thing you can do is talk to like, take a deep dive into the company and how it should position itself. And the, the most effective way to do that is you take a deep dive into 
key stakeholders. So you talk to people up and down the organization, you get different perspectives, you ask them how they think the company should be positioned. What are the strengths? How does it stand apart? And you look for common themes um, within those conversations. Then you talk to customers and you ask them the same type of questions and you ask them about how they get jobs done and the value they get from the product and why they pick the product. And one of the interesting things is when I deal with clients is a lot of them are very reluctant at first to let me talk to customers because I'm a third party and their customers are gold, but they're not talking to their customers, so they don't know. So I'm talking to customers <laughs> and, and getting perspectives and, and ideas and insight that they never see. And then the third part of the, of the, of the pillar is really uh, doing a competitive audit and looking at how different companies are positioning themselves in different ways. And then you sort of form this matrix of how, how you should place them. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of a position exercise with an SEO company right now. And what's always interesting is you, you, you dig deep and you come up with a theme and it's never, it never comes out of left field. It's always something that has been within the organization sort of conversations. Mm. But they just don't rally around it and they need someone to come in and bring a third party perspective and say that thing that you talk about sometimes that you don't emphasize that's the thing like that's that's the thing that's going to differentiate you from differentiate you from all the competition and so it it doesn't come as a as a complete shock to the system Um, and then you can back it up with research and say this is what your customers say this is what all your key executives say so i'm not making this up it's actually <laughs> what people are actually saying. So it's, it's, it's fact, not fiction. It, it sounds like every department has their idea, whether it's like, let's just talk, go to market team, marketing, sales, product, customer success. Like you said, we all, we're all kind of having overlapping conversations, but there isn't an exercise that allows everybody to just kind of align on something. And, you know, maybe customer success says one thing, sales says another, marketing says another, but this exercise brings this cross-functional ability, like brings everyone together to be like, this is, these are the shared ideas that kind of rise to the top. Exactly. So within companies, people tell variations of the truth, you know, sales will tell you one story, marketing will tell you another. And Mm. the problem is that, is that there's inconsistencies and that the story is confusing and there's no commonalities. And what a positioning exercise does is it takes all these inputs and you spit it back out to people. And you say, this is, this is the story that we want to tell and you'll get feedback. But in many cases, what you're saying to the organization is based on your feedback, based on your perspectives, based on the research, this is the story that we're going to tell. And you're going to rally around this. They have to believe it. Like you, and the key player in the whole exercise is the CEO. He has Mm -hmm. to be the the positioning evangelist. He has to be a cheerleader to just to basically say to the entire organization, this is the new story. You're going to follow it. We're going to make it an integral part of our corporate DNA, and this is how we're going to go to market, and this is how we're going to win. So it's it's a multifaceted process, but at the end of the day, you need one story that's told everywhere consistently. Beautifully said, um, and I think that's the perfect segue into uh, what I like to talk about next. And we've sort of, uh, you know, we've just poked at the uh, this topic is the website. From where we're sitting, the website's the most important marketing asset that the B2B SaaS uh, company owns. I think I don't think you're going to find many marketers or B2B SaaS marketers that, can, that are going to disagree with it. Um, and I've been exploring uh, through some other conversations on, on this podcast, the roles, 
whether it's the role or the roles that a website plays across the entire buyer and customer um, journey. So like acquisition, activation, retention, referral, even evangelism, the website can play some kind of role across all of those of those facets. Um, given all the work that you've done on, on positioning and, and just as a fractional CMO, uh, I'm curious, what expectations do you have or what roles do you see that the website can or even should play? Uh, that might be a little bit of a loaded question and we can unpack that if need be, but curious what your thoughts are there. It's a loaded question, but like all the B2B marketers that you talk to, the website is is the bell of the ball. Right. And that it plays the most crucial role in educating, enlightening, entertaining, um your prospects and customers it, it is the place where you want to make sure that you're answering all their questions you're motivating inspiring you're making them curious enough so that they want to reach out to you, they want to engage with you they want to download something contact book a demo make a purchase uh, so you have to think about the website who does it serve and what do you want them to do and and really focus on the customer. It really isn't about your product. It's not about your technology. I think it's a, it's a mistake that a lot of companies make is that the, the copy, the design doesn't align with the, the journey that you want customers to take. And a lot of, a lot of B2B SaaS companies, people hit the website and the messaging is confusing. People don't understand what's in it for them. They can't envision the experience that they're, that they're, that, that could happen if they purchase a product, they, the, the benefits just aren't front and center. There's, they find it difficult to validate their interest because case studies are hidden or they're behind, mm -hmm. they're gated and they're, they just, they just don't feel confident enough that that this company is going to serve their needs and that among all the options that this is the one they should consider so yeah it's it's the you know you can spend a lot of time on social and content trying to drive people to your website but if it doesn't perform then you've wasted all that money all that time all that effort uh confidence is uh, i think a, a very important word here and it might maybe it's always been in in I guess like the marketer's vernacular, but I'm finding that it's really coming. That word is rising to the surface more these days as far as the role of marketers, making sure that you're providing whatever information or content to the prospect or the buyer for them to be confident. It's all about that confidence. Um, now, that being said, you have some opinions as far as specific pages of the website. And um, I'd like to kind of pick your brain there. You've posted recently about the About Us page. I think there's there's a, a number of things that, that you don't like about what, you, what you're seeing across the board. Can you take me through that? Sure. So number one, well, that should be number two, but number one is that the About page is, is often the second most popular page on a company's website behind, behind the homepage. Yet, if you look at many, many About pages, they're afterthoughts. It's almost like they kind of cobbled something together. Well, we should put the leadership team on there and we should probably throw some badges and uh, some logos and, and that's the about page. And I think that you want to emphasize what you do, who you serve, how you're different and how you, and, and, and the value that you deliver. And that's gotta appear, that's gotta be 
front and center on your about page. Because you think about how little time that people actually spend on a website once they hit it. And if you don't connect with them right away and you don't tell them what they need to know right away, they'll bounce. So I recently hit an about page for, I think it was a social media agency. And it was some overly creative, obtuse, you know, <laughs> message about happy people work at the company. I don't care. I don't care if your people are happy. I don't care if you have a purpose. You know, I don't care if you've got a good corporate culture. What I care about is me. Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm going to be very selfish as a prospect or customer. And I want to know what do you do and how are you going to serve my needs? How are you going to deliver? How are you going to take me to the promised land? And most of how pages don't do that. And it's not that hard. They, they can be structured in a very straightforward way that tells me what I need to know, tells me, builds confidence in the company and the leadership team and allows and just basically says other people have come before you. You're not alone. You can move forward with confidence and we can meet your needs. And that's the role in a about page. Keep it. Don't be overly creative. Although there is there room for creativity, but, you know, it's don't overthink it and certainly invest the time, money and energy to design an, an about page that that serves audiences who may not know, know anything about you, but they want to. Do you think B2B companies lean into purpose too much? Or is that an, uh, still an important piece of the pie? Well, if you talk to kind of the strategic gurus out there, they'll say that mission and vision and purpose are all important. I guess at the end of the day, I guess it matters. I'm, I think I'm probably a little too practical. And all I think about is what matters to the customer. What do they care about? Some, some customers do care about mission. Like if you're, if you're, you know, uh, want to do business with Patagonia or Tom's or Warby Parker, you know, purpose and mission will matter to people because it's an, an integral part of how they operate, how they make purchases. But mo most B2B SaaS brands, customers don't care about that at all. Uh, <laughs> so I, so I, think, I think a lot of companies spend a lot of time thinking about it, but it's not that relevant to the people that, that are going to move their business forward. Sure. Yeah. I, I think I, I think I pretty much agree. The Pay Blaha had a, had an episode around this maybe he brings it up a lot, but he posed that question. And he was like, think about all, think about your marketing tech stack right now, or your sales tech stack. Like, do you, do you know the purpose about any of them? <laughs> and then it's like, do you, do you care about that purpose? Mm. Um, and the person he was interviewing brought up a, an interesting point where it's, it's like, perhaps it's not like purpose is not the end all be all. It may not even be one of the main situations, but it's, it's almost empowering the, the champion if you will, where it's like, okay, if the champion's job is to go out and find a, a, a you know, a solution um, and they like what they see, but they also agree with the purpose, they can use that as like um, a bolstering, I guess, sentiment when they take it to the CMO or the CFO or what have you. It's, it's kind of like another weapon that they can kind of pull out of their hip pocket, pocket if need me, which I thought was kind of interesting, but I completely agree with you. I think uh, sometimes we do Kind of lean into purpose um, a little too heavily, but um, how, so how should the about page uh, differ from the homepage? It's a good question. So I think the about page is really a boiled down version of the of the of the homepage. So essentially, my vision for an about page is when I hit that, I hear, I see the hero image with people or the product or something that that shows me what the experience of this product or company involves. And then what I want to see is a description of the company. I want the basics. It's the meat and potatoes of, 
you know, what do you do? Who do you serve? And what's the value that you deliver? That's what I want. I don't really care about how you're different. I just want you to tell me what you do and sure. whether you're for me below that, um, you can put your leadership team. So there are real people there. Uh, it drives me crazy when I hit an about page and there's no people on the page. It's like, right. <laughs> it's anonymous. Like if you're talking about a lack of confidence, well, that's a, that's a real way to, to build a lack of confidence right there. Uh, you can throw some logos in, um, some, some badges and you know, your G2s, your Captera, and then you can have your mission and vision statements. I, I probably think they sit lower on the page, Sure. but essentially just tell me that about, you know, what your company does, uh, a little bit about its history so that I feel like, well, you've got a track record, well, here are the people behind the company. Oh, some nice pictures of the employees have, you know, working away or whatever. And that's it. That's all you have to do. You know, it's just about, cool. you know, that's not, has, doesn't have to be overly complicated. Uh, really heated topic right now is the pricing page. And I think, I think we like to paint in broad strokes and put a marker or a stake in the sand and or in the ground and be like, you should do this. You shouldn't do this. I think at the end of the day, as we've been talking, every situation is different. Should companies put pricing on the pricing page? Should they include it? And, and it, if yes or no, or perhaps a better question is how should they think about that? How should they, how should they approach answering that question? So pricing is a marketing and sales function. And a lot of companies don't think about it that way. I do believe that pricing should be on a website so you can have pricing and then you can have a customized package. A lot of custom companies do that. Well, price one, price two, and then talk to us if you want the enterprise package. I think that's perfectly fine. But mm -hmm. pricing provides context and it allows people to get a sense of whether what you do, they can afford what you do. So that's, it's a filtering exercise to begin with. Um, but I think by the time that people hit pricing, they should have a pretty idea of whether this thing is gonna deliver value, whether it meets their needs, aligns mm -hmm. with their interests, and, and then the price shouldn't be a shock. Like they should be prepared by the time they hit the pricing page, they should be prepared for the fact that this thing's pretty full featured, it's pretty robust. It does pretty much everything we want it to do. And, and I'm prepared in general terms about how much it could cost, especially mm -hmm. in, in enterprise um, sales where price tags are obviously higher. But the experience should be, it shouldn't simply hit a, a pricing page and here are our prices. It should give you some sense of, okay, if you're this type of customer with these type of needs, then this package is perfectly good for you. It's kind of like, when you go to a diner and they've got six options, the, the, the menu is limited, but it's really easy to figure out whether a particular item meets your, what you want. And the same thing for a, for a B2B pricing page is this package meets exactly what I want, or maybe it's this package, right? So it allows people to slot themselves into the product that could work for them. And it makes sales a lot easier because people, will eventually hit sales or hit the, the purchase page. And they're already, they're further down the road than before because they, they know how much they want to pay and they know what they're going to get. Pricing also has to build confidence. So when you hit a pricing page, you should see logos of other customers that have gone before you. Maybe even some competitive charts, some really creative competitive charts, us versus, you know, competitor A, B, and C. And not nothing cheesy like, 
you know, where you see the check marks for us and X's for everybody else. (laughs) But it should say, listen, if you're this type of customer, we're great for you. But if you're this type of customer, maybe, maybe this other product is better for you. You know, so I think those are the fundamentals, but I think that pricing has pricing pages have to be thought through. You have to be very strategic about it and recognize that it's a marketing sales function and even product development for that matter, because by the time you get to the pricing page, you really want to emphasize that we've got everything you need. So there should be no other choice than us in some way, shape or form. Yeah, it, it seems like it's another way to solidify your positioning. Like pricing mm-hmm. is, it plays into positioning. And maybe I'm just simplifying this a little bit too much, to be honest here. Um, but I agree with you. I think I think there should be some element of pricing, even if you're a large sales-led organization where, you know, it's probably going to be mostly customized. But, um, you know, it's like I, I've going on the LinkedIn and, and following the sales community or following marketing community, some salespeople would be like, no, we, there's no reason to put pricing on the page because we don't want to scare customers off. And the first question that comes to mind when I hear that is, do you have customers? And it's like, okay, yeah. Are they paying for the product? Yeah. Okay, cool. So they like it. <laughs> you know, it's like, just go out there and find more people like that and use the pricing page to, to help position. Right. Or am I just, is that just like, am I oversimplifying that? No, I think you're right. I, when, you hit a pricing page and there's no prices, my immediate reaction is they're trying to hide something. <laughs> so, and so actually, I don't know who it was, but I was, there's a marketer who said that if you hit a pricing page and there's no pricing, what you're going to do is you're immediately going to go to Google and you're going to go, you know, product pricing. And what's going to happen is that your competitors and their pricing are going to come up. So mm-hmm. all you're doing is <laughs> yeah. driving the, you know, you're driving the prospect to the competition and, and, and as you say, you know, pricing for a lot of B2B companies is, start, is a starting point. Yes, we have the basic package, and, and but pricing is flexible because it depends on your specific needs and the integrations that you want, any customization. So prices are not really the prices. It's almost like a starting point, starting at. Starting mm-hmm. at $5,000 a month, but you know the, but at least it gives context for the customer. And they probably know that they're going to pay more, but it's just a way of hooking them and as you said, I think the I think the 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 thing that you said that really jumped out is pricing is positioning. It really is another lever to position yourself as the only option, and pricing can be a way to make that happen. Something else that you uh, posted about recently is the idea of tools, and I believe you mentioned Chat GPT. That's obviously a hot topic now. Um, and how you're noticing companies are starting to, to truly get an understand, like a, a granular understanding of the customer's problems. And they're starting to build these tools that help them get their job done. Um, can you expand upon that? What, what, uh, what you're trying to convey there? It's a theory that I think companies are using ChatGPT and AI. A lot of companies will use it for internal processes to drive efficiencies and productivity within the organization. Think about uh, you know, Slack, for example, which started off as an internal communications tool and evolves into a full-blown product. And I think a lot of companies are gonna use ChatGPT maybe to generate content, um, to drive product development or you know, sales processes. And eventually a lot of these companies realize this really works well for us. Like this is a really great little app that we've built or, or in fact, um, at the beginnings of a platform, and they'll start to, I can, I can see very quickly that they'll start to uh, commercialize and they'll spin off a lot of technology. It'll be a way for product mm-hmm. development teams to not only enhance the core platform, 
but to start expanding the product portfolio at the same time to get more out of your product development team rather than simply adding more and more and more to the core platform. So, you know, it's another revenue source and the platform, you know, offers so much possibility, so many options that it's only natural that more entrepreneurial organizations will start to see it as a way that they can serve customers in different ways. I love that theory. Um, I want to lean into it a little bit. So this is something that, that I just had recently a, a discussion with Drew Brucker, who's the VP of um, growth at a company called Lasso. And they're a company that's trying to become a vertical SaaS company where it's, they're in event production and they want their product to expand the entire spectrum. We talked about jobs to be done. Are you familiar with Tony Alwick, his agency Stratagen? And they, I just discovered this recently. I'm just kind of diving into this right now. They have an eight-step framework. But regardless of any job, whether it's you're brushing your teeth or you need to uh, uh, put on an event, there's eight steps to that job. And defining is the first one. Then it goes to aligning, I think. Then it goes to setting it up. Then it's execute. Then it's measure. Then it's redefine. It's like eight steps uh, standardized across any job. Now, taking what you just said, could the website be a beta testing environment for the product where if your product specializes in the execution and measurement phase, which most B2B SaaS companies do, it's mostly the execution and, and the measurement phase, could marketing reach out to customers, sales, product, what have you, get an understanding of those first steps, define, align, gather and create templates, tools, calculators. Uh, and then in time, if enough customers or not enough customers, but in time, if enough prospects use these tools, maybe add them to the product. So this almost becomes like a beta testing environment for the product. Mm -hmm. Another theory, just wanted to kind of toss that out there and see what you think. Interesting theory. So the way that I would look at it is that there's a lot of companies offer free tools. You know, mm -hmm. free SEO tools, free audit tools. I mean, the, the most famous B2B SaaS tool is HubSpot's website grader, which people mm -hmm. love, which provides tremendous value. And it's a lead gen tool. Uh, you pop your email address in and then they've got you in their, their giant machine. But mm -hmm. I can see companies using AI and ChatGPT to start rolling out free little tools for customers and using it to experiment and test, maybe expand the product for portfolio, dip their toes in the water, um, you, know, you know, allocate some, a few, a few uh, marketing and product development dollars to, to see what resonates. And if there's traction, then there's two ways they can go. One is they can expand the platform. It's a great way to expand an existing platform as Lasso is, you know, attempting to do to become broader, or they can start to, if they see enough traction, they can spin it off into a separate company or a separate product. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things about AI and ChatGPT is it's terrifying and exciting at the same time, but it's also opening up this, what I think is going to be the wild west of entrepreneurship is that people are going to use the open standards to develop all kinds of amazing products. I mean, my son is 16. He's totally into open AI and ChatGPT, and he's already creating products, little widgets already. Awesome. Uh, I think there's some really superstar programmers out there that are going to do some amazing things. And, and, um, and I, I, you know, the one thing, 
the one thing I do find with with ChatGPT and AI is that everyone's, oh my God, AI is amazing. Look at all these, look at all this amazing tools. ChatGPT is going to change the content game. But Jasper AI has been around for for a long time, and there's all these AI tools already. And mm -hmm. this is just the beginning. Like this, we're just scratching the surface in terms of how companies are going to use AI for all kinds of different things. And I think for market, it's going to change the marketing landscape, not only for content marketing, but for analytics and for optimization and, and, you know, nurturing customers, onboarding customers. It's going to be really wild to see, you know, how it's used in different ways. I, uh, I think that what we're talking about here can be discussed in a demand generation capacity, whether it's tools outside of your product, whether you're using AI, ChatGPT, if you're developing these tools to help your ICP, to help your prospects get a job done, whatever that is, that seems like the perfect way to start a conversation in dark social, in these communities, where it's like, if I'm just chilling with somebody and they're like, I have this, I don't have a tool for this. And it's like, okay, cool. Let's say you're doing event production. Cool. Here's this little calculator to help you, you know, piece together, you know, or find data points. And now all the company has to do is connect those dots, right, to their product because it's related in some way. It's so really just a question of like buyer journey velocity. Do you see that or, or this playing into demand generation uh, a bit rather than lead capture, if you will? Oh, for sure. I think that you want to drive as much awareness, as much value, as much utility as you can, even before a customer touches you. A lot of mm -hmm. conversations are going on on the dark web and dark social. Uh, you know, do you have a tool to do this? Uh, I wish there was a way that I could do that. Oh, there's this little widget, this little free widget. So it's a way of of differentiating yourself from competitors by simply offering more value in different ways. So absolutely, I think the you know the most creative organizations, most entrepreneurial, are going to be ones that are going to have an entire portfolio of mm. little widgets that they can experiment, you know, expand, retract, launch, stop, all those kind of things. You know, you see these websites, these utility websites that do pretty much everything for free these days. I think that's a model a lot, a lot of companies are gonna, are gonna embrace as well, is that we, as long as we're serving the needs of our customers in some way or our prospects in some way, as long as it's a way of, think of it this way, a lot of B2B companies have leaned into content as delivering insight and value but at the same time, they could lean into AI and all these little widgets to deliver insight and value and mm -hmm. generate brand affinity even before mm -hmm. they actually hit your website or actually talk to a salesperson because they love what you do. They love, they're, they're confident in your, in your technology. It, it delights them. And so by the time they actually hit you, they're, they're feeling good about you already. Like they're ready to buy or mm -hmm. seriously consider a purchase. So absolutely, a they could be a tremendous marketing and sales tool the all encompassing question here before we close out, I've got a, a couple of rapid fire questions here for you, but what is the biggest issue you have uh, with this confusion between demand generation and demand capture and lead generation? What do you wish more companies did less of or more of? I fall in demand generation side of the, of the equation, because I, I believe that if you're, doing the right things and offering value and insight and utility and positioning yourself as a company that really empathizes with prospects and customers and how they get jobs done, then it's going to drive people to you. You know, it's so hard to capture leads these days that, you know, 
that people and people are very um they're very leery about marketing and sales these days a lot of it they don't trust marketing and sales they don't have a lot of confidence in marketing and sales because they just believe that it's just about bullshit right <laughs> but if you're out there and you're delivering value and people feel like you're thinking about me and my needs and my interests and it's a great great way to to really jumpstart your demand generation beautifully said thanks mark this has been great i've got a, a couple of rapid fire questions for you here who inspires you uh who what books have you read uh what what other influencers or thought leaders out there would you like listeners to know about it's probably an answer that a lot of marketers give these days but chris walker is sure. is the you know he's he's got a he's built up a great profile for a reason because he's willing to say things that are i go go against the grain like he's willing to zig when others zag and mm -hmm. i've really been impressed by his staying power over the last two three years because everybody has their rise and fall everybody pops up and becomes the new guru and then they disappear and, and chris walker has really done that in a really effective way and i'm really impressed with the way that he's evolved his own company refined labs and grown it into an 80 person agency in the last three years very impressive uh, and as far as sort of books I've read, I mean, a lot of business books, to be honest with you, they're pretty boring. They're pretty dry. You, know, <laughs> you read the first, you know, 25, 50 pages and you go, I get, I get your, I get your uh, thesis. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, I see your book, agenda. <laughs> yeah. I see your agenda, what you're trying to get to me too. But the <laughs> book that I read recently that I really was impressed with was, uh, was Shoe Dog by Phil, by Phil Knight, uh, the story okay. of Nike, Nike. I mean, it's a, gotcha. it's a, it's a, it's a great entrepreneurial story because it's not about this guy who developed this product and it became an overnight success and the world's his oyster. It was about entrepreneurial struggles, trying to find product market fit, you know, the challenges of actually trying to build a business and the ups and downs and, and how he actually built a company built on purpose, built on quality, built on understanding the needs of his, of his, of his customers. Mm. So a really inspiring and easy read. And uh, the fact that I finished it is, is a testament to the, how much I like the book. Awesome. Awesome. Um, and then obviously for everybody listening, uh, you have your own podcast, Marketing Spark, which is always a good resource for uh, SaaS tech or tech companies. I'm curious, anybody that you'd like to plug that you're having on, or are you going to be taking part in any kind of uh, events uh, in the near future? Well, the one thing I would like to plug is the second edition of my book, Marketing Spark. Published there you go. the original version three or four years ago. And as any writer will tell you, when they look back at their work, it's always crap. They always look at it and go, it could have been so much better written. Look at this section. It's awful. So what I did is I went back to it and I really updated it. And the way that I'm marketing it unofficially is fewer spelling mistakes, better grammar. Gotcha. <laughs> a little bit smarter. Yeah, this is gonna yeah, a little bit up a little. So it's available on Amazon. Uh and it's really a do-yourself guide for for branding, storytelling, and B2B marketing. Beautiful. Um sounds great. Mark, thank you so much. You know, this is this is a new podcast. We're all just kind of getting started here, just kind of diving in. Um, so really appreciate your support for for coming on and just talking this shit through. It's been a lot of fun. And hopefully this isn't the last conversation that we have. I think there's a lot more that we can talk about, but thank you for joining. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. We covered a lot of ground uh, over the last 60 minutes. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to share my words of wisdom or semi words of wisdom, however you want to think about it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. All right. All right. Take care.